That's a good word for us, isn't it? Our God reigns. And whatever happens in your life um, has first gone through God because he's in charge. You know why that's so important to remember, church family? Um, well, it's something that, uh, something that Vince Lombardi once said. He had a sign made up for the Green Bay Packers there in the locker room. It said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. We need to know that our God reigns because fatigue happens. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. Turns us introspective, turns us negative, makes us question and doubt ourselves in the areas in which, you know, we'd otherwise be very confident. Tasks that seem easy are nearly impossible when we are fatigued. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. And fatigue is not just physical fatigue. Fatigue can be emotional fatigue, can be mental fatigue, spiritual fatigue. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. Anybody fatigued today? Yeah? Yeah. I was sure feeling fatigue uh, a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I was really feeling fatigue. And, uh, um, you know, last week I shared a quote from C.S. Lewis who said that faith is the art of telling your moods where to get off. And um, I was feeling fatigued a, a few weeks ago. I, I, I wrote in my journal, it was, it was April the 17th, and I don't think it had anything to do with being two days after tax day. But it was, you know, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And, and I, I remember writing a verse of the psalm which says, why so downcast, oh, my soul? Why so downcast? And then I remember, I remember writing, God, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this for the next 20 years. Fatigue. Yeah, fatigue. And, and it's a good thing that faith is telling your moods where to get off. Because <laughs> if, if I didn't continually do that, I wouldn't be in ministry. And you probably wouldn't be at your job. And if I didn't continually tell my moods where to get off, I don't know that I'd still be married. Right? Am I the only one who thinks that? <laughs> yeah, you are, Randy. Okay, I'm a sinner. All right, I confess. <laughs> but you get fatigued. You get tired. It's, it's, you know, and it's not, the, it's not one day of having to go through it that gets you fatigued. It's like a thousand days. It's never the first donut that kills you. Right? It's not. It's not the first donut. It's not the first difficult day at work. It's not, it's not day one with your boss who is an ogre that gets you down. It's, it's not day one with a colleague who keeps kind of hammering you over and over. It's not. It's not, it's not the first day in, when your family wants to know what cult are you going to on Sunday morning. It's not, that. It's not the first day of that. It's just on and on and it's relentless. And, and, and after a while you get beaten down and fatigue makes cowards of us all. Fatigue does that. And, and, and you are in ministry. You go in ministry uh, 
classmates of mine graduate from Bible college and we're ready to take on the world and, you know, we want to get into churches or start churches and we think, man, this is going to be great and, and, and people are going to be all around this and, and then you wake up and you realize, no, not really. It's kind of like Moses uh, going to Pharaoh saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, get out of here. No. And if you've got time to ask that question, then get your own straw. And now you got to then go back to the people that you're supposed to minister to. And now, I mean, and it's just, and it fatigue makes cowards of us all. And, and then on top of that, you hear about an internationally known speaker who's going to be coming this Tuesday night, 7 o'clock, who's going to talk about another faith system that uh, is on the move in the world and and especially in its most radical extremes, applauds those who give their lives to take out other people's lives. And you go, wow, wow, what's going on here? You know? I mean, what's going on here? And, and if this other faith system is on the move, if Islam is on the move, and if it's, I mean, it, it, I mean if, it's, if it's in some pockets of the world growing and flourishing, is, does that, could that mean that there may be truth? To it, I mean, is it, am I, are we studying out of the wrong book? Or is just fatigue make you say, how can you say that? Because fatigue makes cowards of us all. That's that's how we say that. And and we didn't deal with those kinds of questions twenty three years ago in Harrison, Ohio, when I was a student minister. Thus, the, we didn't deal about the rise of, of of radical Islam. We didn't deal with that. You know, you know what we dealt with. We dealt with, should we have choruses or hymns in worship service? That's what we, those were our substantive issues. We dealt with, should we break the communion bread like from a, like a saltine cracker type of a piece or should we take it individually? That's what we wrestled with. Oh, yeah. I can show you minutes of those meetings. Real substantive things. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. And so, is anybody feeling fatigued today? You get in this foxhole of family stuff and church stuff and world stuff, and you just, it's easy to, it's easy to feel immobilized. It's easy to feel paralyzed. And, and if worse comes to, you know, the worst thing that can happen is that you just say, forget it, and you just go AWOL. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the worst thing. And, and, and if that doesn't happen, you know what the best worst thing that happens? It's still worse, but it's the best worst thing. The best worst thing that happens is that you get hunkered down in this foxhole of your stew of fatigue. And you just say, oh God, I'm just going to wait it out till I die or you come. Hmm? Fatigue makes cowards of us all. What? Anybody fatigued? What, what do you need? What do you need if you're fatigued? Huh? You know what you need? You need Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. That's what you need. That's what you need. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. If you have your Bibles, that's where I want you to turn. I want you to turn to the New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6, 17. It's on page 830 of your church Bibles. 
And Ephesians 6.17 is a verse that's in a paragraph that's subtitled, The Armor of God. The Apostle Paul is in prison and he's leashed to a Roman prisoner. And he's trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to conclude this magnificent letter to Ephesians, which is about God's new community, God's new nation, God's new race in Christ Jesus. God, through his son Jesus Christ, has created a new nation from the nations, from the races, from the ethnicities, and God has created this new nation in Christ with new relationships. And God says that his new nation needs to be secured. And you need to stand firm. And so he summons all citizens of his nation to be citizen soldiers. He's drafted us all to be a part of his security force. But you're not putting on your armor. You're putting on his armor. It's his armor because you have an enemy who wants to undo what God has done and is doing and will do. And that enemy is Satan and the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world. It is spiritual warfare and you need spiritual weapons. And that's why Paul talks about, it's why he talks about truth. That's why he talks about righteousness. That's why he talks about gospel-fitted feet. That's why he talks about faith. And this week, that's why he talks, us, talks to us about chapter 6, verse 17. He says, take the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Now, it's interesting that that's not the first time that the Apostle Paul uses this phrase, the helmet of salvation. It's not. In fact, if you were to turn a couple of pages over in your church Bible to page 837, you would see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, where Paul says, since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate. So he's using those metaphors. And then he says this, and the hope of salvation, see it? And the hope of salvation as a helmet. So we're talking about the helmet, we're talking about hope, we're talking about salvation. And I wanna just answer two questions here. Question number one is, why does Paul use this image Helmet, hope, salvation. What's going on in Paul's mind? What's driving this metaphor? Why does Paul use this? That's question number one. The second question is, what's, what's the meaning of it? What is, he, what is he talking about? Okay, well, let's unpack the meaning of this metaphor. Why Paul uses it, question number one. And question number two is, what is the meaning of the metaphor? So, well, why Paul uses the metaphor, that's pretty easy. Because when you're thinking about armor and you're thinking about a, a helmet, that's Pretty much the most self-explanatory piece of equipment. You need your head. Right? When you go into a fight, it's important that you have your head. You need your head. And the helmet protects your head. You need it. And on the other hand, if you're, if you're in a fight, go for the head. Always go for the head if you're in a fight. If you have one bullet, go for the head. If you, you, know, if you have one punch, go for the, hit the nose. When you hit your opponent's nose and their nose bleeds and their eyes waters, what does that mean? That means you're going to win. That's what that means. Okay? I'm sorry I got distracted. <laughs> Street fighting 101, straight from the heart of your pastor. Let's go back to the Bible. 
The helmet is obviously protecting the head. And what Paul is talking about here is protecting your mind, protecting how you think, protecting your attitude, protecting your mindset. That's what we're talking about. What's going to be, why? Because fatigue makes cowards of us all. And you find yourself fatigued, mentally fatigued, mentally drained. And you're in that foxhole. And you get so lost in the tactics of life. Paying the bills. Taking care of the car. Getting the car fixed. Getting it fixed again. Getting it fixed for the third time. Doing this. Running this errand. And you're, and you're just, you're, you're entangled in these tactics. And you're stuck in this foxhole and it's hard to see is there a is there a bigger picture that's am i making a difference i've been at this job for 20 years have i made a difference i've been at this church for almost 20 have i made is there anything going on are, are, are we making an impact and it's so easy when you get lost entangled in the tactics is there am i and, and what paul says is what if i gave you a helmet What if I gave you a helmet that once you put it on your head, you would with no doubt whatsoever have clarity of thinking. You would with no doubt whatsoever be able to see that what's going on in your life is in fact making a difference and that there is a bigger picture. What if I could give you something you could wear on your head and as long as you keep this on your head, you'll be transported right out of that foxhole And you will be in headquarters looking at the grand strategy which will then empower you to get up there to the front line which is where God wants you to belong. What if you had that? And Paul says, you have it. It's the helmet which is the hope of salvation. Get it on. Strap it on. Take it up. Take up the helmet. And you get out of the foxhole. And onto the front line. Wow. That's pretty motivational, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, rah, rah. Hopefully you're asking the question, okay, coach, what's salvation? Because that's the question, right? I mean, we can do the rah, that's the why. And it's true, and we need to. That's the why, though, but here's the what. What is, what is salvation anyway? Well, that's the second question I want to talk about. I want to talk about what salvation is. Now, salvation is a church word, isn't it? It's a word. You, if you Google salvation, the first nine hits, church. Church, 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 church. And then the tenth is I don't know what. But, okay, Salvation. It's a nice church word. I didn't, I've never heard it word, I've never heard the word used at Jerry's, IGA, or True Value, or Lowe's, or anything like that. I've never heard it. It's just salvation. It's a church word. So what are we talking about when we talk about salvation? What is salvation? Huh? What is salvation? I mean, we often think of salvation as, what happened to me when I got saved? Right? And, and, and yes, but let's get out of the foxhole. There's a little bigger picture here. And, and here, here, here is a, a pretty good definition of salvation. It's this. Here we go. Salvation is all that God does to make this world right. 
All, all that God does to make all things new. There we go. That's what salvation is. God is, uh, salvation is all that God does to make all things new. All that God does to restore the effects of sin. All that God does to remake and renew and restore this fallen world. All that God does to make all things new. And what I want us to see is that there's a process which involves what God did, past tense, what God is doing, present tense, and what God will do to make, to make all things new, past, present, future. If you walk out of this room, if any of us walks out of this room, and we don't get this, this biblical definition of salvation, I will have failed you. Salvation is past tense, present tense, future tense. All, all, that God, all that God did, all that God does, all that God is doing to make all things new. Let's first talk about the past. All that God has done. I think that when Paul uses this phrase, take the helmet of salvation, he is no doubt, he's no doubt drawing not only from his prison situation, leashed to this Roman soldier, but he's also drawing from, he was a Jewish rabbi before he became a Christian. He knew the book of Isaiah cold. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 15, 16, and 17, where it says, The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. God saw that his people were stuck in the quicksand of their own sin, of their own disobedience, and that life was darkness, and God, they're his people. He loves them, and he's like, Why doesn't somebody do something? And he says, I'm going to do something. Isaiah says, then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Verse 17 says, he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and there it is, and a helmet as salvation on his head. God himself armored up and rescued his people. He went on a search and rescue mission to redeem, to rescue, to save his people. And ultimately, Ultimately, God's armor was the armor of human flesh, where he clothed himself in flesh. That's why 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. It says, here it is, God appeared in a body. God appeared in a body. He clothed himself in flesh. Jesus said, Jesus said that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, and we're the lost. And ultimately, ultimately, that deliverance occurred on a Roman cross where Jesus gave his life for our disobedience. And, and the divine exchange occurred where Jesus took my sin and my disobedience and in turn, we receive his righteousness. That's what happened on the cross. And it's so important for us to remember that because, because this world has some pretty thin ideas about the meaning of the crucifixion, really. Some say, oh, Jesus, Jesus' death on the cross was... Oh, it was just a really noble thing. He just died for what he believed in. Wow. That's thin. That really. Let's say that you were 
walking along with one of your closest friends. And this friend had had an impact on your life. And you're, and you're walking along the rim of, a, of, of the Grand Canyon with this very close friend. And you're just walking and talking. And, you're, and this, this, this friend is just, has meant so much to you and has changed your life and is talking about this world. And, and, and they're, he's walking along the rim of the canyon. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he hurls himself into the canyon. Now, would any of you say, how noble? How, how, that was noble of my friend. No, you wouldn't. You, you would go, what did he just do? Why, what, why, why did you do that? We, we were so close, and, we, and all of a sudden you just hurled yourself into the, what? And then you'd kind of be mad, right? And so, how can you do that? It's just, and you would say, then you would say, that was dumb. That was, you were 33. That was dumb. That's not noble. But let's say that you were walking along the rim of that canyon with that same friend. And your friend says, you know, be careful. <laughs> you could fall in. All right? Just be careful now. All right? Be careful. And you're not listening. You're clowning around. You're clowning around at the rim of the canyon. And then what happens? Because well, you're clowning around, you stumble and you fall, and you just about go in, but your friend rushes to rescue you and saves you, but in doing so, your friend goes in, and your friend dies, but you live. Now, that's noble, and that's Christianity. That's what God did to every one of us, and we're called to trust that, for it is by grace You have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption. That's another word for salvation. Through his blood the forgiveness of sins. In accordance with the riches of God's grace. That's what God did. But is that all? Is that like he died and then now I'm on my own? Huh? Oh no. Now remember 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 it says that God appeared in a body but then it says he was vindicated by the spirit. What does that mean? That means by the power of God Jesus was raised from the dead never to die again and he lives and he reigns and he appeared to his disciples and then he ascended but you know in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 Jesus said to his disciples he said you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. And and, and you know that if you've read the book of Acts, you know Acts chapter one verse one says, uh, uh, Luke says, in my former book Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do. Began, see he's not done yet, is he? He's not done. Oh, the cross portion is accomplished. But in terms of going global with the good news of the gospel, this is what Jesus is doing now. See, the acts of the apostles really isn't the acts of the apostles. It's really the acts of Jesus Christ 
through the Holy Spirit infused into the lives of spirit-filled believers. That's really the book, but Acts is shorter. And so you see, I mean, God shows up. And now, see, in the Old Covenant, Jerusalem and the temple, they are the focal point to draw the nations. But here in the New Covenant, believers are the temple. Believers are the new Jerusalem. And we're not gathering together. We're going global. And that means your job is God's pasture, God's place, God's sphere where he wants you to represent his son. His spirit is in the lives of his believers. And, and so that means you in, you're in construction, you're in education, you're in medicine, you're in government, you're a student, you're a teacher, you're in media or arts. These are spheres These are spheres where God wants to use you because the gospel is going global. You see, brothers and sisters, salvation is not escapism. Salvation is not, oh God, beam me aboard the mothership. There's no, there's no intelligence on this planet. That's not, that's, that's not salvation. Salvation is God going global. Jerusalem. Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Salvation is God. Is God who has saved me is now using me to make a difference in the lives of others. That's what we're talking about. I want you to imagine literary archaeologists suddenly finding one of the lost plays of Shakespeare. It's a five-act play, but unfortunately, only four of the acts have been found. All right? And there's this fifth act, but, you know. So how, how, how are we going to understand this? How are we going to do this play? Well, you're a character, and, and you've got, you'll do the play by being consistent with the author's intent of the first four acts. That's what you'll do. But then there's this fifth act. You're going to have to be consistent here, but based on what you know about the author's intent and the characters and you study, and then the fifth act is you're going to have to be innovative, right? Church family, we are the fifth act. We are the fifth act. We're we're Acts 29. You say there's only 28 chapters to act. That's my point. We are writing the next chapter in the history of Christianity. And so the question is, will the world be drawn? Will, there be, will they be enticed by the fifth act or will they be annoyed by the fifth act? Huh? You go to the movie theater and you see previews of coming attractions, right? Or you watch TV and you say there's a coming attraction. What's the purpose of a coming attraction? Huh? What's the purpose? The purpose is to annoy you. That's why. Because you, you were supposed to be there at 2 o'clock. That's what the paper said. And the, you get there and then the film doesn't start till 2.30 because there's all these coming attractions. It's there to, no, it's not just there to annoy you. It's there to entice you, right? It's there to bait you, to entice you, to attract you so that you, so that this potential audience will come and you will be a part of this experience, right? Church family, we are the coming attractions. We are the preview of of what 
God wants to show to the entire world. So the question is, are we annoying to the potential audience? Or are we enticing and attractive, are we? See, God is doing a work. He wants to do a work in your life so that through your life, people will come to know his son. Salvation is what God did. It's what God is doing. And we're the coming attraction of what God will do what he will ultimately do. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. Paul says, but since we belong to the day, the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Since we belong to the day, what is that? That is the day of Christ's return. That's what that is. One day, Jesus is going to, The Bible teaches that Christ will interrupt history. God's going to get up, and he's going to walk over and go, turn the TV off, and it's over. And it's not over. It's just getting started. Jesus is going to come, and he's going to return, and he's going to take over. And every nation, every government, every individual, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what's going to happen on the day. And you're going to get a new body. And, 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 and God's salvation will be completed, not just with me personally, but over the entire universe. It'll be cosmic. That's what I'm talking about. I like how someone put it here. One author said, when you became a Christian, God gave you new software. Right? He gave you new software. You're running on new software. And right now, God is running his new software. He's running new software on the old hardware. Right? And you just say, God, why don't you just come again and give me new hardware? I know, I want that to happen. The older I get, God, give me new hardware, please. Huh? He said, why doesn't God, well, you know what? You know, it's really not that impressive for the Indianapolis 500 to be won by an Indy-style race car. That's not very impressive at all. It's not. Now, for the Indy 500 to be won today by a Model T, that's impressive. Huh? That's impressive. And God, what's impressive is God taking his spirit and using them through our clay vessels. When you became a Christian, God gave you new software. And right now he's running that new software on the old hardware. But on the day, on the day of Christ's return, When he makes all things new, he's going to give you new hardware to run that new software. (laughs) And on that day, wow, you're going to have a new body. Imagine being able to do all that you want to do only without sin. You worship. As wonderful as worship is now, it's still on the old hardware. God said, I'm going to give you new hardware. That's what's going to happen. And, and, And that's why That's why the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, let us not become weary in doing good because you've got your helmet strapped on your head and your mind is protected and you're involved in the tactics of life, but you understand that there's a bigger picture going on that goes beyond you 
that involves what God has done, what God is doing, and what one day God is going to do. And that is enough to help me understand that that helmet is there to get me out of the foxhole and up to the front line where Jesus is. And when that happens, church family, Paul says, let's not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Is your helmet strapped on? Is it on? Is it tight? Is your thinking, your mindset? If it is, it's because you have the helmet of salvation, what God has done, what he is doing, what he will do. Following the apostles, the church is sent. Sent with the gospel of the kingdom to make disciples of all nations. To feed the hungry and to proclaim the assurance that in the name of Christ there is forgiveness of sin and new life for all who repent and believe. To tell the news that our world belongs to God. In a world estranged from God where millions face confusing choices. This mission is central to our being, for we announce the one name that saves. We rejoice that the Spirit is waking us to see our mission in God's world. The rule of Jesus covers the whole world, and to follow this Lord is to serve him everywhere without fitting in. As light in the darkness. As salt in a spoiling world. Amen.